So the first reported fecal transplant uh, is a, around the year 400 AD. It was done in China, and it was um, it was literally a oral soup-like concoction made to treat diarrheal illnesses. Welcome to the Curbsiders, an internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and the practice-changing knowledge you need. I'm Dr. Stuart Brigham, here with my co-host, Dr. Matthew Watto, and the prestigious one and only, one-of-a-kind, Dr. Wasim Joaquin. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for this invite. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Was. Yes. Was is a uh, guest, second-year gastroenterology fellow uh, who works in the San Antonio area. We can't name his employer, but... Uh, he, he uh, graciously <laughs> decided to come on last minute. <laughs> okay, so on this episode, our guest is Dr. Adam Ehrlich. Dr. Ehrlich went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, where he earned an MD and an MPH. He later completed a residency in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital before entering fellowship in gastroenterology at Temple University Hospital, where he is now an assistant professor of medicine and the director of their new fecal microbiota transplant program. Uh, this is this is a hot topic in medicine, and we just think it's fun to talk about poop, so we really wanted to do this show. We get pretty much all into whatever is out there right now, whatever information is out there on fecal transplants, and I think this will be a great show for listeners. So without further ado, hi, Dr. Ehrlich. How's it going? Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we are very excited to talk about fecal transplants, and uh, I know our listeners have a lot of interest in this. They think it's correct. I like so. I, I like talking about it as well. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we have with us uh, Dr. Wassam Wakim. He is a second year fellow in gastroenterology. We have him sitting in today because he knows a little bit about this, and he's also interested in learning more from you. Very little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did you get, how did you get into, uh, when I uh, last worked with you, this was not an area of interest. So when did you start uh, learning all about this and getting into this? So we were sitting in a conference during my third year of fellowship, uh, discussing actually an inflammatory bowel disease patient who had had recurrent C. diff multiple times. Mm. And our surgeon, uh, brought up the question, hey, are we doing fecal transplant or should we be doing fecal transplant here at Temple? And no one was doing it. And my chief of GI at the time sort of hinted that, hey, someone should sort of pick up the reins and, and do something here. And I was still looking to potentially get hired as a faculty member. So uh, a colleague of mine as, and, and I said, hey, let's start get learning about this and, and getting things going because it'd be a good uh, thing to sort of advertise myself as um, you know, in, in uh, looking for faculty positions and things like that. So that was my uh, initial interest. And the more I learned about it uh, and looked into it, I thought this was something that is really unbelievably helpful to people that really need it. Um, and uh, and that's sort of how it started. Hmm. So uh, we, we're definitely going to ask, uh, ask you a lot more about that. Um, I do want to ask, so... I know that the hospital you work at is very busy. So where are you finding the time to do this extra reading outside of your normal duties? <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing with now uh, with technology and how easy it sometimes is to do that. Um, I look up stuff on my phone. I mm -hmm. uh, have some journal articles that I 
keep with me in my bag. So if I happen to have some downtime, um, I can do that. And actually, I save a lot of my reading for when I take work-related trips and I'm flying somewhere. I'll pull out like a stack of seven journal articles, journals, and uh, read that. What what specifically or what apps are you using? Just get specific. I I think people like to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm using by far and away most commonly is UpToDate, which I'm not a surprise to anybody. Yeah. Um, but there are a few apps related to the GI journals. So um, Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology has an app. Um, gastroenterology, uh, both uh, journals run by the American uh, Gastroenterological Association, the AGA. Um, that's where I get a lot of my stuff. I, for a time, had journal watch for GI, um, which I don't think I renewed a few months ago. Um, but at least for a year or so that was, uh, useful every two weeks, I would get something that, uh, that updated me on the things outside of my particular interest within GI. Mm -hmm. So from fellow perspective, what would you say the most useful app for a fellow to use the journal watch or some of those, uh, those, um, Institute, uh, apps that you mentioned before? So, you know, I think for me, so my, my particular specialty besides fecal transplant is inflammatory bowel disease. Right. So I feel like I keep myself very well up to date on the IBD related literature. Um, but the things outside of that, um, are very useful, uh, to get from something like journal watch cause it picks, you know, a few highlights. Um, uh, so I, I probably use that more frequently than the AGA related apps. Um, I also am a big proponent of going to these conferences. Go, we just came back from DDW um, a few weeks ago, uh, Digestive Disease Week, uh, where I spent uh, more time than most others in some of the conference, some of the lectures and stuff to keep myself up to it date. It wasn't just on, a party. Uh, Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was in San Diego, so it was hard to go, but uh, hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was fun. That's great. And so you, have you been getting a lot of support from your institution to be able to do this stuff? Because it sounds, it sounds like you're traveling a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, traveling is two or three times a year. It's not like I'm not I'm okay. sort of overselling it a little bit. Um, but uh, I've been going recently to a few local places giving grand rounds on this topic, um, smaller hospitals that don't necessarily have the exposure to this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the hospital is uh, I think doing the best it can. It's a, uh, it serves a, a minority, uh, underserved population. And so there's always financial issues, but I think, uh, it's doing, uh, as best it can to support us. Okay. Well, I think, I think we can just start getting into it now. So for, for fecal, for fecal transplant, uh, you want to give learning objections for learning? <laughs> yeah. Objections. <laughs> could, could you give, uh, your learning objectives for the, for the listeners? Sure. So um, you asked me to come up with three. So um, understanding who may benefit from fecal transplant um, and sort of the basics behind it, um, understanding the process, actually what happens during a fecal transplant, um, and then some of the logistic and regulatory hurdles of it. Um, and then I'll add in the end, we'll talk about uh, sort of some up and coming things that fecal transplant may be useful for down the road, which is not currently being used for. Wonderful. So do you know where the, the idea to start doing this came from? So the first reported fecal transplant uh, is a, around the year 400 AD. It was done in China. And it was, um, it was literally a 
oral soup-like concoction made to treat diarrheal illnesses <laughs> that, that presumably contained fecal material from other people. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that was the first sort of ever documented report. Um, it was in the 17 or 1800s. They started using it in horses, uh, using horse feces for other horses to treat um, uh, illnesses. And the first time it was used in humans uh, was in 1958, at least uh, in the published medical literature. Um, and that was for pseudomembranous colitis, which, as we all know, is a sort of pathognomonic for C. difficile infection. At the time, they didn't know what C. difficile infection was. Um, and you can have C. difficile infection without having pseudomembranes, but um, that was the first documented case. Uh, the first case in C. diff, uh, sort of run-of-the-mill C. diff, was in the early 80s. Uh, and it really became, uh, maybe in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, much more common as we know the C. diff epidemic became much more common or C. diff became much more uh, prevalent. So I, I, I got to ask this question only because it's, it's, it, it really begs to be asked. How do you think the first discussion with the FDA went when they went in front of the FDA and said, hey, look, we got this idea. It involves giving a patient poop. And like, how, how do you think that they, how, how was that sold, the initial idea to the FDA? So the FDA and, and the regulatory things around fecal transplant is actually very interesting and complicated in a way that I don't think is necessary for most people to understand. But the FDA does not approve fecal transplant. Okay. The, F, the FDA requires you to get an investigator new drug permit for doing fecal transplant on everyone for any indication. Huh. Um, and when the... There was a, when they instituted that rule about three years ago, there was a huge outcry from the GI community because it had been done uh, for the last 10 or so years in increasing prevalence um, for C. diff patients. And because an IND process for anyone who hasn't done it is a cumbersome process, um, they felt that a lot of patients were not going to be getting an appropriate care um, because they would be missing out. There would be very few places that could actually do this. So they changed their rule to – uh, exercise what they call enforcement discretion for C. difficile. So if you're doing it for C. diff, you do not need any kind of special FDA approval. Um, but if you're doing it for anything else, and we can talk about those things, um, you do need special approval. Um, and they, the thing is, you know, they don't really know how to handle it, as you suggested, because normally their job is to make sure that what you give to a patient does not have any bacteria in it. And this is, and this is the exact opposite, right? right, if, right. If, we gave you, if we gave you sterile poop, then it wouldn't do what it's supposed to do. Mm. Um, and so they don't really know how to handle it. They don't know whether to classify it as a drug or classify it as a bodily fluid like blood right. or to classify it as a tissue or to classify it as, you know, I mean, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so it's still ongoing discussion sort of as to what's going to happen down the road. And, and then things that you don't even think about. So like let's say they call it a drug. Well, is it then patentable? Can someone, can someone say you know, this particular process or this particular formulation or whatever is a patent and then you know, other people can't use it legally? So there's all sorts of things that, um, that uh, are sort of uh, you know, background things. So, um, so, so I, I, I just I, I got to interrupt you. Your personal opinion, does it follow, fall under food, drug, or administration? <laughs> and my follow-up question is, could I potentially patent my own poop? Yeah. 
I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna leave that one go. <laughs> we got to standardize your poop first. <laughs> okay. Well, so yeah, I, I mean that's what they're they're trying to standardize it in in, in some way <laughs> in, in a way that's uh, that you know we don't really understand the real fundamental background of why it works. Um, you know, we we understand that especially in patients with C. diff, that their microbiome, the gut bacteria are altered for some reason, typically because mm-hmm. they're getting antibiotics or because, um, you know, they've been healthcare exposed or whatever. Um, and we're restoring that normal, healthy flora. Um, but we don't know, is it mm-hmm. one particular bacteria or is it some combination of bacteria? And, you know, the, the, the hope in the long term is to not give someone someone else's poop, but to give someone mm-hmm. A pill of a concoction of bacteria or something along those lines to mm. to restore the bacteria, the normal bacteria, without having to put you at risk or at least the theoretical risk of infection or you know the ick factor of getting someone else's poop. Yeah, I'm so glad that you did not say administration because that might get us in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Doctor Ehrlich. So, speaking of origin stories for fecal transplant, we always heard Ooh, about that story. medical student that uh, is being assigned to collect his feces mm. in a, a random blender mm. that yep. uh, brought up from lab or brought up from the, you know, the closet of a GI doc to be used for this process. So at least in our institution, we, I've heard stories like that. Uh, how about yours? So when we started the process, we, the concept, my concept was to have a patient provide a donor. So a patient come with a family member or a friend or whatever that would provide a stool sample to use as, uh, for donation. And I learned that at the time there was one, now there are at least two um, nationwide stool banks. Uh-huh. So uh, this is a, the, the major one, that, the one that we use at Temple is called Open Biome. It's based in Boston, uh, started by uh, some MIT uh, postgrads um, who had a friend who had C. diff and realized there has to be a better way. Uh, so um, the the issue in the past, and, and some places still do it this way, is you bring a donor, again, a family member or a friend, that donor has to get tested um, to make sure they don't have C. diff, other infections, um, you know, HIV, hepatitis, all these other things that people are theoretically uh, at risk of transmitting. Um, and the patient's insurance doesn't pay for it because they don't really – they haven't advanced yet to the point where they're going to pay for someone else's testing. And the the, the donor's uh, insurance is not going to cover it because they say, well, this guy's healthy. Why am I testing their stool for all this stuff and their blood for all this stuff when it's mm-hmm. not necessary? So it, can't, it fell to the patient to pay out of pocket for these testing. Um, and what uh, stool banks do besides – sort of giving you a measure of quality control, give you a measure of processing, as well as not have you actually prepare it yourself, um, is hmm. they can do the testing on the donors. Um, and once you pass the testing, you can give many samples. So uh, the donors that give in Boston, you know, sometimes will come several times a week, you know, deposit their sample, um, which get processed, gets processed, and then you're only doing the testing once and getting, you know, 50, 100, however many samples as a result. So as an economy of scale, it's much more efficient cost-wise. Right. So uh, how, how much are we talking about that we can make per, uh, per gram? <laughs> so, so, so if you live there and you are a donor, my understanding, and I don't know how many times a week you have to do it, but my understanding is you can make between ten dollars and $12,000 a year. That's, which uh, is which is, it's, you know, I mean, and for people who are, say, walking by that office every day on the way to work anyway, you know, 
Everyone poops. So a family of six could live off a of poop. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and uh, I wonder what the facilities are like there because that would really affect my production. But, right. Yeah. Right, it's probably too much. Um, I don't. I don't know the answer to that, but I will say we that need a um, the it is it is very difficult to become a donor. Um, they have a very strict uh, exclusion policy, and I would suspect that all of us would not be donors because we're probably colonized with stuff. Um, just the fact that we're doctors and we're around patients in the hospital routinely. Um, so in addition to sort of the general screening, which is sort of based off of blood donation screening, um, you know, like the same, they're, they're testing for the same things as you would before you can donate blood. Um, they're also testing to make sure you don't have any stool infections. You can't have any antibiotics recently. You can't have any uh, GI conditions that might mm-hmm. cause your um, gut microbiome to be different. You can't have autoimmune diseases. You can't have had GI surgeries. So there's a whole host of people that would be excluded. Um, and they say that they only accept between 5 and 10% of prospective donors to be actual donors. So according to Dr. Google, it's uh, 13000 a year with $40 per stool sample. So that's, there you go, 13 yeah. That was close. Yeah, Inflation, I guess. It's yeah, the last time that's I was... it. <laughs> All right. Well, to bring us back to topics, so C. diff, we used fecal transplant. It have been used. Have you used fecal transplant for any other conditions? So the as I said, the, the only FDA sort of semi-approved indication is for C. diff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ongoing studies in a variety, for a variety of other diseases – um, the one probably most uh, that we're most aware of, at least in the GI world, is inflammatory bowel disease. Um, there is some suggestion uh, in, and there have been conflicting studies, that it is effective uh, in ulcerative colitis. Um, we know that uh, IBD patients have different microbiome than the average person. And what's unknown is, is it a cause or effect to chicken or egg? So is the, is the fact that the microbiome is different, does that cause the IBD? Or if they have IBD and as a result, the microbiome becomes different. Um, so at least there's some thought that if we restore the microbiome to normal, are we, can we actually be treating the underlying inflammatory bowel disease? Um, separate from that, there are a whole host of um, disorders, both out, you know, inside and outside of the GI tract, that have been implicated in um, alterations in the microbiome, and so as a result, at least in concept, any of those diseases could be fixed or treated by changing the microbiome by fecal transplant. So they they range from um, things like. Uh, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to uh, cardiovascular disease and coronary disease and even some things like um, multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's. Um, there are at least some links to altered uh, microbiome. Wow. And I've read that uh, patients who have more of like a healthy, balanced diet will have a more favorable microbiome than patients who are just eating kind of like garbage, junk food, standard American diet. So... It does maybe they kind of go along with like so patients might revert back like if they get a stool transplant and they have insulin resistance they might revert right back if they just kind of go back to their old ways of like McDonald's three meals a day. Yeah, we don't know, um, and there, to my knowledge, have not been like longitudinal studies of people's microbiome um, as to sort of how things change over time. But yeah, it would certainly stand to reason that if some component of your microbiome is related to your diet, then no matter what you do to it, once you, if, you, if your diet doesn't change, it may revert back. Um, there's obviously clearly genetic factors as well, um, you know, things having to do with, um, you know, 
the the um, proteins lining your GI tract, um, as well as uh, you know any number of other things. So it, it's probably a lot cheaper to use stool, but is, are there any investigational studies to look at administering a more beneficial microbiome via a different vehicle instead of you know stool? Uh, yeah. So so well, first of all, let me say, um, and and we can talk about this more if you want about how we actually do the fecal transplants. Um, but uh, there is some study into using stool pills, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, just poop in frozen form right. in pills. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the sort of, uh, you know, ideal circumstance mm-hmm. would be, you know, some combination of bacteria that you give in pill form that can pass the stomach and, with, you know, withstand the acid in the stomach that gets to the, the lower GI tract and, sort of repopulates. Um, We're not there yet. There's certainly things ongoing. There's a lot of data and and, and research out there for what specific bacteria are the problem bacteria or the things that are either deficient or in excess during some of these conditions. Um, So I saw um, at DDW a few weeks ago a study looking at um, sort of signatures of the microbiome in patients that are first-time C. diff patients versus recurrent C. diff patients versus, you know, average healthy donor, healthy, healthy patients, and sort of what those things are that are missing. Um, Up until about 10 years ago, we couldn't even figure out what was in the microbiome because so many of the bacteria are, um, uh, you can't grow on plates. Mm -hmm. Um, We now are able to do um, 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing um, on the microbiome, and we can that now tell in, in what quantities and in which actual species we have uh, in our microbiome. So, you know, we're now able to sort of analyze that a little bit more. We couldn't do just uh, recently. I, I think there's actually like a startup in Silicon Valley. I think it's called Ubiome or something like that. And it's they're, they're like kind of looking at the microbiome and trying to figure out how this can be used, I think commercially, but also to, to benefit people. I, I'd have to double check the name of that. But. Well, there's Open Biome. Is that the one? I'm sorry. Uh, it's open. No, there's you biome. There no. it is. Sequence your microbiome. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I think yeah. I, I think they're you know, and they're looking into all the not just C diff. I think they're looking into a lot of. I heard somebody talk about it one time, and they were they were talking about using it for all these other potential indications to to make people healthier in other ways. But uh, before we get into that, I do want you you were you mentioned you offered to tell us how it's done. So can you? Can you give yeah. us that in excruciating detail and maybe even get into like people trying to do this at home over the internet and whatnot? Well, well, Absolutely. Dr. Ehrlich, I think before maybe you get to tell us what, uh, what it entails, mm. why don't you tell us where it fits in the algorithm at least? So sure. at least for okay. our listeners that uh, haven't heard about this or kind of going to use maybe just antibiotics to treat it, um, what, uh, where does it fall in the treatment algorithm and uh, kind of what's the difference between recurrence and relapse? We kind of mentioned that a little bit. So I just want to be sh- sure we're all on the same page. Sure, absolutely. So, so um, let me step back and say uh, C. diff, as we know, is an increasing problem, um, especially uh, in the non-hospital setting. So you, people are getting this much more in um, the community when they've had no antibiotic exposure, et cetera. Um, so it is an increasing problem. Um, and I'm going to go by the uh, ACG guidelines, which are the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines. Um, that's in combination. They, they did a, um, uh, uh, guidelines with the IDSA, the um, Infectious Disease Society of America, and there's a few other ones out there. But basically, um, 
your first line therapy for mild to moderate C. diff is flagell um, for 10 to 14 days. Uh, and the, your other alternative is oral vancomycin. Oral vancomycin does not get absorbed systemically, stays within the GI tract and um, is effective against C. diff. Um, for moderate uh, C. diff, your, uh, or, or um, severe C. diff, I guess, uh, by criteria, um, you're going to give these people um, oral vanco. And then if they have complicated disease on top of that, you may add in IV flagell. These are obviously hospitalized, very sick patients. So, um, so the indications for fecal transplant are semi-defined because I say that because, because it's not really an approved therapy. It's sort of listed as uh, you know, sort of a last ditch effort um, for a lot of cases. But um, sort of the general guidelines are um, after three recurrences of uh, mild to moderate C. diff done as an outpatient, including a recurrence after a vancomycin taper. Um, so I make sure the patients that I see have all uh, tried a vancomycin taper. Um, the concept in a vancomycin taper is that C. diff has both a uh, vegetative form, which is the active form that produces toxin, as well as a um, spore form. And so the reason we think recurrence happens is you get vancomycin, it kills off all the vegetative form, the spore form is not affected, so you stop the antibiotics, and a week or two later, the spores uh, germinate and then cause the disease again. So the idea behind a taper is that you stop, you know, you sort of taper it down slowly. So those, those spore forms start to form and then you hit them again with Vanco over and over again. So you get all of it gone. So if it doesn't work, um, then you're looking potentially at fecal transplant. The other indications are for patients that have moderate C. diff, not responding after a week of therapy. So that means someone who's in the hospital, they get their standard treatment and they're just not getting better after a week. Um, and then the last one is fulminant patients, patients with severe complicated disease who are not getting better within 48 hours. And those are the toughest ones to handle because there's always a question of should they go for colectomy or surgery or should we do this? Um, and there is no good data out there. Um, for when you sort of bite the bullet on either one of those things. Um, these patients are often in the ICU and they're, you know, the surgeons and, and us are, are having that discussion. Um, so those are the, the general indications. I can tell you that I've done patients with all of those indications um, over the year plus or so we've been doing in the temple. Um, and um, yeah, I would say we're sort of 50-50 inpatient versus outpatient. Um, most of the studies that report on this are looking at a much heavier outpatient population mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of by default than uh, less sick patients. Um, but I think our success rates, uh, you know, parallels a lot of those studies. Well, thank you so much for that summary. I think that's great. Now we're all kind of aware of this. So why don't you tell us now how, what the procedure entails and how it's delivered and very excruciating detail <laughs> as promised. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, um, so first, you know, obviously, so I'm the person in the temple that does it. So if there's an inpatient, they call me for a consult. If it's an outpatient, they get scheduled with me in the office. I want to make sure that they are an appropriate candidate. They meet one of those criteria. We've done it sort of outside of those criteria for one or two cases, which are sort of exceptions to the rule. Um, and I need them to have a documented positive C. diff. Seems silly, but some patients I've seen, you know, have C. diff negative when I test them. So obviously I don't offer fecal transplant. Um, and, uh, and they're willing to undergo what, what's going to happen. So um, we do it by colonoscopy. Uh, you can, in concept, 
give it via an upper GI route. So that would be either with an NG tube into the stomach, an NJ tube uh, post-pyloric, um, or uh, stool pills, which are sort of available at this time. Um, or you can give it via lower GI route, which is either via colonoscopy um, all the way into the right colon or the terminal ileum. Uh, you can give it via flex sig if you're only going part of the way in, um, or theoretically you can do it via enema. Um, it is there are if you look it up online, there will be places that tell you how to do it yourself. Um, I do not recommend that, um, but uh, I think Power of Poop is one of the websites that does that. Um, but you know, generally speaking, those are people that are looking to do this for things that are not C. diff, that are not, you know, we don't know as much about uh, the effect. Um, so uh, we decided to do it for colonoscopy for a variety of reasons, but I think we now actually have very reasonable data to suggest that it's the most effective. So at the most recent DDW, Open Biome, which provides stool now to uh, many, many places across the country, uh, provided a, uh, an abstract on over 2,000 patients that they had treated with their stool. Um, and they looked at um, whether it was given via an oral, you know, an upper GI route versus a lower GI route. Um, and while there had been suggestions that colonoscopy was the most effective way, um, we've now, that, that data uh, in over 2,000 patients shows that colonoscopy is more effective than giving it via an upper GI route. And so um, that's how we do it. Patient preps for a colonoscopy like they normally would for screening or for whatever. Um, they take their vancomycin up until the night before the procedure, and I do that because I want the C. diffs as suppressed as possible. Um, and then uh, we do a colonoscopy uh, and ideally get into the terminal ileum, and the stool comes from open biome as a uh, in a frozen 250cc uh, container. We defrost it ahead of time. And for those of you familiar with um, colonoscopy and endoscopy, there's a, a channel that you can sort of uh, put instruments through to take out polyps and, and flush water through and things like that. So we literally draw up the, the stool into a syringe and squirt it into the colon um, through, uh, through the channel. Um, I have a particular way that I do it, but there's no evidence behind that. I put 150 cc's into the terminal ileum, 50 cc's into the cecum or right colon, and 50 cc's into the transverse. Um, the thought process being that the stuff in the terminal ileum will sort of slowly trickle throughout the rest of the colon and hopefully do its magic, um, although I have no data whatsoever to support that particular method. Um, I give the patients Imodium right beforehand, uh, four milligrams, um, in the hopes, again, that things sort of stay in a little bit longer. Um, and then they go home, they don't take their antibiotics, their vancomycin anymore, um, and we cross our fingers. And most people, I would say, I, tell, I quote people three to five days. Um, I would say the vast majority of people who get better feel better the next day. Um, and I tell them that we wait a week and sort of assess at a week where they are. Um, effect uh, in, the, in the studies suggest uh, an effectiveness of greater than 90%. Um, and these are patients who have failed, as we said, you know, multiple courses of other therapy. Um, we know that, say, another course of vancomycin, when they're on their third or fourth or fifth recurrence, is looking at an effect of somewhere in the 30% range. So you're looking at 90 versus 30. Um, and there have been a few randomized trials that have looked at the effect. 
um, bo uh, both from an oral, uh, from an upper route and from a colonoscopy route, and uh, both of them have been were stopped early because of how effective it was, uh, and, and showed sort of those similar numbers, ninety versus thirty. So what? Are what do I tell my patient when uh, when they ask me, you're going to spray what in my colon? And can right. I contract any specific diseases from that? And what do you do about that? Is there prerequisite labs that you get on your patient before you inject them with a stool? Or, or Sure. Go ahead. So, so first of all, most of these patients have been suffering for months mm -hmm. and months and months. And I'm actually surprised at how little resistance – I get when I suggest this, um, you know, most of them say, whatever you think is going to, if this is going to work, I'll do it, you know? Um, but, uh, we, you know, the only FDA requirement, uh, uh, for the C. diff is that we have them sign an informed consent. Um, and so I tell them the following, um, I tell them there, uh, you know, there's a risk to the colonoscopy, just like any other colonoscopy. There is, at least in concept, if your colon is inflamed, a slightly higher increased risk of perforation. Um, although in reality, when I do these procedures, the vast majority of them look totally normal. They don't appear to be inflamed. Um, they have a uh, – I'm doing this not for the purposes of colon cancer screening. So I'm not looking for polyps and uh, obviously if I see something major, you know, I see it. But um, this cannot be used, uh, you know, as a, as a method of colon cancer screening. So if you need a colonoscopy for that, we'll do it again later um, down the road. In fact, we're putting things in to block our view, which is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do during normal colonoscopies. So um, so that, that, that's number two. Uh, and number three, there are theoretical risks. So there's theoretical risk of infection. Um, similar to a blood transfusion, um, we're giving you someone else's, um, you know, uh, bodily, well, we're giving, fluid. uh, bodily fluids. Yeah, that's a better word for it. Right. So, so, um, you know, the donors are tested, they're screened for HIV, hepatitis, um, you know, any number of other things, just like blood is screened for there, as we know, there's a very small, but, but tangible risk in blood transfusion. So it would be the same. I don't know of any cases ever reported of someone getting a contracting a serious illness uh, from a fecal transplant, but it is theoretically possible. Um, I tell people that there are some other theoretical risks that either have some case reports um, or have never been reported. Um, those things being um, a flare of inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, there's a few case reports of someone who had stable IBD who flared after a fecal transplant. Um, there's a one or two cases of someone who developed IBD shortly after a fecal transplant. Whether it's related or not, we don't know. Um, and then there's these theoretical sort of autoimmune reactions, right? Not only are we giving them bacteria, but we're giving them uh, a donor's proteins that have been shed into the uh, into the stool. Um, and theoretically, you can have you know an autoimmune response to that. Um, there's one case uh, that made head, that made news uh, about a year ago. Who who was a, a a the patient was thin. They got a donation from someone who was very overweight, um, and over the next six months gained a whole lot of weight, much more than they had ever been, even when they were healthy prior to the C diff. Um, and again, we we think that microbiome does relate to, to weight and obesity. And so it's not unreasonable to think that that may have been real. Um, and as a result now, actually open biome has a BMI requirement. So you now, I think you can't be over a BMI of 30, um, to donate if you're at, uh, if you're using open biome. Well, I'd like to so, think that that patient that you mentioned that a C. diff diarrhea was their, uh, was their diet regimen. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, so those are the things that I tell people. Um, and then the other thing I tell people is that there are 10% of people theoretically that don't get better um, or recur. And based on the studies, I will offer a fecal transplant one more time. And in the, in the um, original study done, you increase your um, overall cure rate from you know, 89 or 90% up to like 95, 96% in, in those pe- for those people who needed a second one. Um, so everyone is aware uh, that that is a possibility as well. So are you quoting a 90% uh, chance of success for the fecal transplant for your patients? So I'm telling them that the literature to this point suggests approximately 90%. um, But the situation, uh, sort of their circumstances does affect uh, the outcome. So there was a recent uh, abstract uh, by Monica Fisher at Indiana University and now in paper form just released like two, uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago in the Red Journal, the American uh, uh, Journal of Gastroenterology, um, that showed risk factors for failure. So the major risk factor, uh, sort of number one, was inpatient status. So if you were an inpatient, you were seven times more likely to fail a fecal transplant. Um, and, you know, their, so their success rates were somewhere in the 70s to 80s uh, percent range. Still way better than the 30% you're going to get if you're doing vancomycin. Um, but I know that those people may have a higher rate of recurrence. Um, other things that uh, cause you to have a higher rate of recurrence are if you're immunosuppressed, um, for whatever reason, um, increases your risk about threefold, I believe. Um, and then... Uh, so a few other, if you've been hospitalized for your C. diff and stuff before, also increases your risk. Um, so that's what I tell them. So you mentioned that you put them on vancomycin up to the treatment uh, day and Imodium the day of. Is there anything that you recommend afterwards, like a probiotic or special diet? Or I don't give them any of those uh, recommendations. Um, my personal feeling on probiotics is... I don't recommend them, but I don't tell people not to take them if they ask me about them. So, you know, I, I think we have very limited data on effect um, uh, in a few diseases we do. So so VSL number three is very clearly been shown to be effective in palchitis in uh, patients who have had um, a colectomy on, in ulcerative colitis. I mean, I, I think there's good data for that. Is, um, there's some data. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Is that a specific formulation? I'm not familiar with that. The, yeah, so VSL yeah. number three, VSL number three. It's a specific company. Um, uh, I forget what the exact bacteria is, but um, okay. it's a specific thing. And and that's one of the reasons. Uh, your question is is exactly one of the reasons why I feel like I, I can't, uh, in good conscience, recommend it routinely because you know all of these different formulations, you know, there's a thousand of them out there. They're not regulated. Um, we have no idea what's actually in them. Uh, bacterial counts, uh, some have are mix of back, different bacteria, some are individual bacteria, whether they're even alive or dead is totally unclear. Uh, some of them are refrigerated. Some of them are not refrigerated. They're not, uh, there's no oversight whatsoever. Um, so I tell people, if they ask me about it, I said, I can't, I can't give you any good evidence that there's going to be a strong benefit, but I don't think there's going to be any significant risk. So if you want to try them, go for it. Yeah, talking, and that's not true for C. diff. That's just in general. Well, we talked about the favorite up-to-date before. I know that one of the only yeah. things it says for probiotics is maybe for prevention of C. diff, 
associated diarrhea in patients who are going to be treated with antibiotics for like prolonged courses, potentially mm-hmm. think about it. But so, so sometimes I will do it if we, if we have it on formulary, but it, it kind of, I, I don't know how much help it's providing people. Yeah. Well, I will tell you again, uh, just from the recent DDW, um, a paper that looked at people who had successful fecal transplants and then who needed antibiotics in the next year or two for whatever reason, right? So this is one of the things I tell people. I say, look, you know, it is possible that if you need antibiotics down the road, you could get C. diff again. Um, now, you can't avoid antibiotics if you have a bad pneumonia. Or, I mean, I'm not suggesting right. that you're not taking antibiotics for that, but recognize that you may have a risk down the road. So this paper looked at those patients that successfully were treated and then needed antibiotics down the road. They looked at the, those patients who got some kind of prophylaxis with antibiotics that time, whether it be a probiotic or an anti-C. diff uh, antibiotic, so like Vanco or Flagyl, along with whatever antibiotic they were getting for their other thing. Um, And this was a small-ish study, but showed no benefit of either probiotics or those antibiotics or the combination to prevent a recurrence of C. diff. Um, And again, this is a specific population post-FMT patients, um, but it stands to reason that that might be uh, sort of expandable to, to other folks as well. So I, I don't have that many more questions. I, I think kind of to wrap up, uh, I wanted to talk about future directions here and maybe expanding. Do you see this expanding to other things? But uh, Was Brigham, do you guys have any other questions? or Not that fits in right here. Okay. Do you have one that fits in somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious. As a gastroenterologist who uh, studies poop for a living, how often does your wife say, hey, what do you think about this? And points at your children's poop. What? Um, so I have I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. See? And I will say that uh, it's happened a few times, but more ah. frequently, but more more frequently, the comment I get is, "You're a poop doctor. Go change the diaper." Hmm. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's applicable. I'm one time. I'm glad I'm not a GI doctor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Uh, any any more random tangents, Stuart? No, you know what? They were all answered. So <laughs> I, I was going to ask who was the first indiv- individual to donate his or her feces. Uh, what do you? Was it like a punishment for the first person in the four hundreds? Like they're well, just like I, I would we're going to give you this soup by mouth for for what? Maybe they had pica. I yeah. and they I got better. Know. Like I, you know, I got diarrhea. I'm going to die. I might as well just eat eat this. Looks yummy. I I don't know. I, don't I, know. I was actually going to say it was probably Adam, but that was kind of a bad. Joke, so. <laughs> Anyways. As in Adam and Eve? Yes. Okay, I got you. He donated his feces to Earth. (laughs) Okay, uh, now we're really on a tangent. All right, so uh, future directions, what do you think? Okay, so um, number one, the most practical future sort of question is uh, the FDA is looking to crack down on stool banks. Um, And not because they don't like them, but because I think they're worried about quality control and, and all those sorts of things. I so I, I think it's called um, the drug. On, it's, it's the war on poop, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so I think, um, in the next year or so, we may have sort of a slightly different way that we have to go about doing this current way that we go about doing things. Um, that said, uh, I think we, the future clearly is figuring out what components of the stool is actually causing the benefit and providing that in a way that does not involve poop. Um, I think 
we are just beginning to learn about how the microbiome affects our health. Um, and, you know, it was certainly in the GI world, but, but as I mentioned, all these other possible diseases that are related. Um, and so I think the, the, the future is actually almost, uh, you know, limitless in what, uh, in what may come of learning these things. Um, you know, the, one of the neatest um, studies uh, I, I like to talk about is something that was published in Science a few years ago where they took mice and they gave – a fat mouse poop from a skinny mouse yeah. and that mouse lost weight. That was a question. And they did the opposite thing, right, where they gave a skinny mouse uh, poop from a fat mouse and they gained weight. And so, you know, clearly there's something we don't understand. Is, are, are these, is this bacteria, you know, affecting hormones, ghrelin, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, appetite? Um, who knows? Every time I tell this, you know, all the fat people in the room are like, hey, can I find out more about that? Um, <laughs> but I, I think, um, you know, we, we just don't know. I mean, there's there's some data out there to suggest that it helps with insulin resistance and diabetes. There's ins- evidence that it helps with um, uh, uh, NASH, uh, liver disease. Um, and, you know, there's so many different possible things. I think from my personal world of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, there are there were two conflicting studies published uh, in, I think, July of 2015 in gastroenterology, one that showed uh, an effect in ulcerative colitis, one that showed no effect in ulcerative colitis. Um, and then at the most recent DDW meeting, they presented an, uh, a, a study where it, w- it was effective um, in ulcerative colitis. And so I think, uh, you know, altering the microbiome is going to be uh, a way uh, that we uh, treat disease uh, down the road, um, exactly how that's going to be totally up in the air. Gosh, I got to say, uh, and you know, all jokes aside, this, this, this crap is amazing. <laughs> 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 okay. All right. Well, uh, Adam, one of the last things I wanted to ask is, uh, what, what would be the main take home points you have, uh, for the listeners today? Sure. So I think, um, number one, fecal transplant is, uh, the way that it works is altering the gut microbiome, and the, the thing that we use it for these days is for C. difficile infection that have failed standard therapy. Um, the patients I see are probably referred to me too late. They've had five, six recurrences, um, and so just awareness that this is an option for someone. Uh, I am starting to see some patients who say are on their vancomycin taper, and I'm getting referrals sort of prophylactically so that, hey, if they fail this, then we'll be ready to do the fecal transplant. And I think that's probably um, the appropriate thing to do uh, so that you know, the patient knows what they're getting themselves into potentially um, and we're, we have uh, those patients on the radar. Um, number two, FMT is very effective in these patients. Um, we spoke about uh, data to suggest that it's about 90% effective, give or take, uh, compared to 30%, which would be standard of care. Um, and so really uh, life-changing for these patients that invariably have had disease for months and months and months and even years sometimes. Um, and then lastly, that we're just beginning to understand the role of the microbiome in your overall health. Um, and I think that down the road, we're going to see uh, a whole host of therapies uh, targeted at uh, altering the microbiome for a whole host of diseases. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking taking the time out of your evening to speak with us. Uh, 
Stuart, any last random questions? One last? Well, th- there was one in the script I want to ask you about. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, it's actually a, a, a realistic <laughs> question coming from me. Um, so, uh, and, and you may have answered this as, as I was uh, daydreaming uh, a little while ago. <laughs> I, I will admit it happened. So, when, so the, these patients, when they get the stool transplant, how much of it is covered by insurance? And if it's not, what, I mean, what, what's the total cost to the patient who's going to pay out of pocket? Good question. So um, the so we bill insurance companies for the colonoscopy. Um, well, I've never had any problem with getting that covered. Okay. Now, obviously, if you have copays or coinsurance or whatever, you're going to have to pay that part. But um, but the the colonoscopy is generally covered by the insurance. And are, are um, you are you billing the colonoscopy for pseudomembranous colitis or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're okay. billing it. We're billing it for for therapy of C diff or, or I got whatever. It. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And, um, that's never been an issue. Um, we, there is a CPT code for, uh, preparation of fecal microbiota material or whatever, um, which we, which we include in the billing. I'm pretty sure we don't actually get reimbursed for it. Most insurances still consider this to be experimental. Um, but we don't bill the, at least at Temple, we don't bill the patients for the cost of the stool. Um, from open biome, the current cost, last I checked, was $380 um, for one treatment. And, I mean, you, you compare that to, say, a six-week course of vancomycin, it's way cheaper. Um, it's way cheaper than a hospitalization. It's way cheaper than almost anything. And it's way cheaper than probably what the testing would be mm. um, if you had to bring, uh, bring in a, your own donor to get tested. So for all purposes, it's, it's uh, uh, cost-effective from that perspective. Um, we take the $380 out of our facility fee um, that we would charge for okay. you know, a regular colonoscopy right. in the same way that for those in the GI world, you know, we don't bill for a snare or a biopsy forceps or something. It's just sort of taken out of that cost. Right. Um, one thing I did not mention um, was that Open Biome now is providing stool pills, uh, and you can get them from Open Biome. The cost for that is six hundred and eighty dollars, so twice as expensive. Um, from a practical billing perspective, you can't bill for anything. Um, so. That, that would have to be out of pocket for patients. Um, and in fact, most of my patients, I, I do mention it to them and I say I will get it for them if they want it. Um, no one has taken me up on it because number one, cost. And number two, no matter how many layers of pill coating you put on it, I think people just have something about swallowing poop. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just looked up that CPT code and, uh, oh, hold on, it's a here it is. Yeah, so it's uh four four seven nine nine. It's three hundred sixty five dollars yep. and not, yeah, three three sixty five and nine cents. And the yeah. pi- the pills I had it in front of me. It was five hundred and thirty five dollars. That includes shipping and handling though. So that's <laughs> oh, great. There you <laughs> they go. give you a break on the shipping. That's so nice of them. They right. lowered the price. It used to be a little more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Way Adam. to go open by on. There's your free uh, advertising there. Adam, I yeah. think I think we should let you go. I want to be respectful of your time, but thank you so much for for speaking with us. Uh, Absolutely, and we will let you know when we put this up out there on the interweb. Great, cool. happy to do it. Thanks, guys, for having yeah. me. Thank I, uh, you. Always enjoy talking about poop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. 
please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. 